Love the control. Love the command. Love the spacebar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. Good evening and welcome to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. 5.30pm every Tuesday evening for an hour. Tonight on Love the Words we have the third found fiction podcast, Look Closer, produced by Steve Clarkson. And in the second part of the show we have Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix with a programme called Church Going 2020. A meditation on poetry and faith. East Leeds FM, love the words. of Look Closer, the found fiction podcast. If you've never listened before, the show is a creative search for inspiration. In every edition, I'll meet up with a different writer to take a journey around their neighbourhood and explore the places, people and communities around them. The things that inspire them as creative thinkers and makers of great things. This time I'm with poet Phil Pierce, who is well known and well loved on the lead spoken word scene. Hello. Hey, oh. Who's this? Hey. You don't need to shout at him, do you? Hey? Come on then. That's it. <laughs> it's a nice big spot, this actually. Nice bit of outdoor space you got here. Yeah. I think it needs turfing and. Um benches put there or have you yeah yeah but no, i like that feature thing in the middle it was a water fountain no and way the wind so we get really bad wind here because we're at the end of this ginnel yeah yeah so it was a water feature that was knocked over and as fence huh. has gone over a couple of times so we've had to Jeez. so me and my dad have looked to build this out of pallets do you want to just talk a bit about where we are and where we're going to be going today yeah, so we are in South Leeds, a lovely little place called Beeston. Um, I've been here 36 years. It's changed a little bit. Um, some good, some bad. Um, people have different opinions about it, but um, I love it. I love it here. Yeah, I've not spent too much time here myself. I've been once or twice, I think, but uh, looking forward to finding out a bit more about it and being inspired by it. Do you like walk around the area kind of trying to soak up inspiration or what what's your process is beast and being an inspiring place for you and your work yeah i've got a couple of pieces um that refer to either growing up here or current situations here um the stuff i write is usually like i can't look at a tree and just think oh look there's some yellow leaves and some green leaves and i'm gonna talk about the age of the tree it's not my it's yeah, not my yeah. sort of thing but i might see a mum telling off a kid 
and that like might people. be people. yeah so stories um, I have got so one of the things I wrote about growing up in Beeston we're just going to come out onto Beeston Hill here um, and yeah. there used to be a row of shops and one of them was called Cowan's and if you were a lower income family you'd go to Cowan's for your school uniform rather than Rawcliffe's right uh, it was just a bit a bit cheaper um, and that that features in one of the spoken word pieces I did about sort of growing up here things that aren't here anymore things that you ah, miss about being one. young and uh-huh. I spent my first few years in Moss Side Manchester a what some might call economically deprived area of the city that's kind of been left behind by the financial growth of Manchester but will always have some of the city's cultural heart I remember nothing of Moss Side because I moved to Leafy, Yorkshire when I was about two years old. But I often wonder what my life might have been like if I'd grown up there. And one day, about 20 years later, I went back to Moss Side. It didn't feel like home, but why would it? The best part of three decades had passed since I last set foot there. But like anywhere you've lived, will always be a home to you as it played a crucial part of how you came to be. It's actually going to be a bit more refreshing this time because the previous two episodes we've kind of been in more rural places, I guess. Well, right. and I've been inspired by nature more. Whereas here, like it, dodging you know, cars, and it'd be like yeah, like <laughs> urban environment, like people, stories, and and I think yeah, there's something in that, you know. Yeah. Well, the plan is we'll go from my house where we've just been up to um, the best view in Beeston. Okay. Um, I'll show you that and then head back. Sweet. Okay, looking forward to it. So, so yeah, so this is so this is Beeston Hill. This is the hill that runs all the way through um, the bottom end of Beeston. So Beeston's split into like a V-shape. Right. Uh, you've got Jewsbury Road at one side, uh, Beeston Road at the other. Uh, but there's a lot of history here. So this used to be a, a cinema called the Malvern Cinema and then that turned into a pub. So depending on what generation you are, you'll remember it either as a yeah. cinema and then my generation it was a pub um, and now it's an old people's home and a family shopper. So it was sort of, it used to be in between did the cinema. Um, and my mum used to, because she was one of nine, one of them used to pay in and then open the fire doors and the other eight. So already you can kind of like come out here and you can imagine the past and yeah. the present iteration of a place. Like especially a cinema where like a lot of memories would be, right? Yeah. And now, as you say, it's it's flat housing yeah. that bit. This is it. And yeah, I suppose I suppose every neighbourhood again, like places go through regeneration, don't they? And things go in and out of trends. Yeah. And I guess the sort of cinema industry and the pub, like pubs as well, are struggling, and they've been replaced kind of on mass. But it's it's cool as like someone who doesn't live here and hasn't spent much time here, like to imagine a bit more of a thriving area here where people are coming yeah. in and out of a cinema door or in and out of a pub door and yeah. a bit more of an environment there now but like i guess with it like would you say it's its whole energy has been a bit transformed then since that took place that oh, change massively like if you walk a little bit further out so what you can see on the left is a it used to be a school called hillside and a that school. yeah and that's now a business center so it's got different service offices in but on the building on the outside, it still has a boys and a girls entrance. Okay. So that's how sort of old the school is. And just on that side, it used to be Shaftesbury House. It's now called the Greenhouse, so it's Eco Flats. Mm. Shaftesbury House was sort of a mental home. So right, right. a lot of my um, family worked there as nurses. Um, and there were, 
Um, I don't know what the equivalent is now. There's a place over at Chapel Town up somewhere. Um, that's okay. sort of a similar place, but there's talks about it being haunted. But then when you're a kid, there's loads of places that were haunted that you never believe stories about. So, but now it's the opposite. It's eco flat, so it's for sort of more privileged people who can afford to pay their prices right. for to live in flats. So. Interesting. I, th- I suppose all over this city, really, like, is a story of uh, regeneration and transformation constantly, and uh, different communities moving around and different communities settling in. And it's interesting. It must have been really fascinating, kind of living here for such a long time, actually seeing it with your own eyes and being able to comment on it. Yeah, work. definitely. I mean, I, I was in Dewsbury. I was asked to host a night in Dewsbury, and I brought. What I used to do is if I travelled to a different area, I'd try and write a piece either about that place or spend a few hours there and write something. And when I was in Dewsbury, it was about how people only ever talk about how good Dewsbury used to be and how now it's just full of charity shops and things like that. And then a couple of years later, I'm saying the same about yeah, where, where I live. So I guess like to that point, I mean, just looking at this, the corner of this house here, like where the sort of the paint or the rendering work has kind of peeled away showing the bricks underneath which look pretty decent condition but that that kind of is a almost like a metaphor for what you've said the transformation yeah. there's a there's an outside there but then there's a hidden there's inside three different that's always textures been on that wall as well that looks to me i've never stopped to look at that before yeah and kind of patterns showing within the bits that have peeled off as well i guess you could probably like just like you could look at look up at clouds you could try and spot shapes and things in there i suppose but no it's just interesting I mean, even if you look that. at what we've just said about the malvern so the brickwork would be the cinema the rendering would be the uh, the pub and then the new outside yeah. phase of it would be what's left of different layers depending on yeah. which generation yeah. has kind of transform transformed the place yeah just started to chuck it down a bit now I know. Um, Are you all right to keep going? Yeah, yeah. We've not got far to go now. Stormzy actually came and had a picture took where we're going. No way. Yeah, so... Okay. Well, I'm sure... You'll be, that... you'll be as cool as Stormzy when we get to where we're going. It'll I be worth so. it. I hope so. <laughs> I thought I was already, but yeah, sounds, sounds good. <laughs> sounds good to me. I mean, like... Even like this view, if you... Actually, you get a really good view of the city here. I mean, yeah. in some of the places we've been on previous episodes, actually, we've seen the city from different angles, and this is a new one again. And you can see, certainly, yeah, the, the highest buildings. Yeah, probably yeah. see a good 20 miles, actually, across the city from here. That's pretty, pretty it's really cool, extraordinary. Isn't it? Even on a pretty poor day like today, you know, it's not the best, is it? But, like, do you think, like, do you find that it might not be something you think about all of the writers might not think about it but do you find that you're affected by the elements when you're writing i mean if you're sort of like cold and wet like we're getting now do you kind of like get creative in a certain way or do you kind of have a certain mood that comes over you i think so i think i think you're more likely to write about like the mood that you're in so if if you're feeling a bit down you're more likely to write something that reflects that um uh-huh but I don't know if I'm the sort of person that could go on like a, a retreat, you know, go away to the woods and... Because I can't make myself right. Okay, okay, So yeah. if we was out now and we received abuse from somebody because we're walking around with a microphone, that would probably inspire a piece from me about the way we treat people and the way we judge people. So um, you sense, you're kind of inspired by real people and real emotions 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's more situa either situations that have happened or sort of predicting, like I've wrote a knife crime piece that isn't a real situation. It's from hearing different people's stories and then putting together sort of like a, a poem about advice for okay. young people about the choices they make. So it wasn't a real situation, but it's to stop that real situation potentially happening. But yeah, but it was kind of true really, yeah. in that way. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah, so, okay, interesting. So you kind of play with reality a bit, a bit there, sort of fiction that speaks a truth kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's definitely how I'd describe it, yeah. Um, so we've got, these are some of the oldest houses in Beeston. There's a poem that was wrote about a house in Beeston. I was going to say. A very, very old famous one. Pretty grand. Just on the other side of this graveyard here. I like the, the top of that one on the corner. It does look a bit like a princess tower, doesn't it? It does, yeah. It's like a sort of Rapunzel, yeah. sort of modern Rapunzel. I wonder what the idea of the gate on top is. So, yeah, there's a, a gate on top of a, a kind of spire on top of a, a house on the corner here. Yeah, it does just look like they've used a gate uh, as a it's bit just decorative. It's isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Just decorative. Oh, you could spend a whole day just commenting on buildings really there's so many stories in buildings yeah. across the city i mean leeds is known for like sort of red brick i guess yeah like a lot of west yorkshire's stone isn't it gray stone but like leeds is very red brick and i think people like that so is this uh, we're just passing the park here yeah beeston park beeston um, park there's again it's like if you ask people about beeston there'll be horror stories and there'll be some positive stuff so we have had a lot of bad things happen in the park, but then we put on community sessions. There's um, running groups that put together uh, groups of people to go running in the park. Cool. We have youth sessions. We have Beast and Festival, which is all volunteer run. We do that every year. Yeah, um, yeah. This, the community spirit in areas like this is amazing. Um, you don't you don't understand what goes on sort of behind the scenes in these sort of areas, and I think we're lucky in that way because the more affluent areas don't have a need for the community to come together to sort of react to certain things or true, to yeah. campaign for certain things. Um, That's true. I think as we, we kind of saw in Chapel Town where we were for the previous episode, I mean, it was clear that community meant a lot there as well. Yeah. But I think, like, it's not always, like, a positive thing. I mean, it is a positive thing, a community coming together, but sometimes the reason why it has to come together is for not a positive reason because it's kind oh, of riling yeah. against something or it needs more support. I mean, it is inspiring when people do kind of join forces and they campaign for things to be better, certainly like in terms of kind of what, whether it's cleaning up the area, whether it's more education, whether it's more funding generally. Yeah. I mean, massively, but I don't, I don't know if I'd like to live somewhere that didn't need anything, that didn't have a community spirit, that didn't... I think I'd prefer to be somewhere yeah. like this, where you've got people that sort of fight behind the scenes uh -huh. to get more. I think you appreciate more when you've had to fight for it. I guess we're just walking past um, Graveyard a Cemetery here, and it's just kind of got me thinking about how long some of these people would have been buried here for, and in that time, what's changed above ground. And it'd be interesting to kind of, just got me thinking visually rather than like literally yeah about like how that might be expressed in in video maybe or a picture like you could quite easily tell a story of the area by the kind of what's changed in someone's kind of lifetime yeah. definitely i mean it would be good to do 
I, I, there's a video of somebody driving around in the 80s with a big old video camera inside the front of like a Ford Escort or something. Um, and it would be good to do that same run today and try and split screen yes. just to see the difference. Like one of my uncles who moved away when he was, when he was well, I say when he was young, but probably like 20 years ago, he came back and he, he couldn't believe how different sort of the area is. Even, so Dewsbury Road, the other side of Beeston Park, it used to be, like my mum would go there and do a full shopping. Yeah. But now the shops have changed that much that she has to get in a car instead of walking and drive to three or four different shops to be able to do a full week's worth of shopping. Right. So in that sense, it's changed massively as well. I guess it sort of maybe shapes you a bit as a person, like, well, living anywhere in a city, you've got to kind of be open to change because cities are places that are kind of in transition all the time, right? And yeah. I think like places rural are like yeah it's a sort of different way of life it's a bit more sort of yeah conservative I suppose yeah. but like I, I, I wonder whether that's shaped your creative work somehow I mean you kind of do you throw yourself into different types of creative work because of that do you think yeah I guess so I mean I was just thinking so one of my pieces is called then and now and it's about how poetry has changed my life so I think quite a lot of my stuff does work around reflection uh -huh, around uh -huh. how things have changed how people have changed um, how perceptions have changed um, and the one about growing up in Beeston is more about what it was like for us rather than the difference today uh -huh. so maybe that's something that needs to be that needs yeah. to be written at the end of our creative search for inspiration taking in the streets people and community of Beeston Phil and I got back to exploring the why factor of writing the one thing that gets us out of bed on a morning and keeps us going all day, every day, to power our writing, hopes, dreams and searches for truth. Going back to sort of inspiration about um, writing, I'm, I'm inspired by either struggle or success. Um, and if I, if I wanted to sit and write something about my garden, I, I could do that. Um, I just think... For me, I'm, activist isn't the right word, but I want I want the the stuff I write because I don't write much. I've not wrote for probably oh between six months and a year. I don't really get time anymore. Um, but I'd like to think that when I perform something, it either makes somebody think about a certain topic, whether it's addiction um, or people who are addicts, not really about addiction, but people don't view me as an addict, so they don't see that. And when I talk about it, it's like, oh, I didn't realise that was your past. Um, so you come at it from the concept of struggle or addiction. You, you approach a piece of creative work knowing that's going to be yeah. the subject of it. Yeah, usually. so what, why, why am I writing this? Who is this for? Um, what am I trying to achieve by people hearing this? Mm -hmm. um, and usually it's sort of either to raise awareness or yeah. um, like there's been a couple that I've wrote where I've only performed them a couple of times because they were just about something or they were for a specific event um, but yeah the, the sort of longer lasting ones have been social issues or mm -hmm. something like that and I think you can find inspiration in anything like the one I wrote about cancer it wasn't like oh no cancer's horrible it personified cancer so it's me shouting at cancer and telling it why I hate it so much and how it's affected my family 
<coughs> and yeah. that gives people an opportunity to come and talk to me about what they're going through. So I've never performed that poem without somebody coming up to me and saying, I've just lost this person to cancer and it really made me feel and it gives them an opportunity to talk to a stranger oh. about something they would never you would never stop someone in the yeah, street and yeah. say hey, my mum's just died of cancer so you, so you know what you're going to write about usually it's not like you usually walk around and, and think up think and, and try and just keep your mind open and and be inspired by something that might just take you by surprise and trigger a certain thought you know what you're writing about it's quite a planned approach then yeah usually so if like the, the, the one about knife crime was never meant to be about knife crime. It was just about choices and consequences. And when I started writing, I just, it wrote itself as a knife crime piece. Um, I've never studied poetry. I've not got any sort of no. degree in English. You know, I'm not, I'm not a, a, a creative person in the sense of I'm, I'm educated in creative writing or anything like that. I've just got a particular way that I write and it's usually without thinking, it just happens. Like I say, I don't edit. Usually what I'll do is I'll write something, read it out a few times and I'll think, oh, they might need an extra word in there. So instead of saying there, I'll say they are, or you know, just to add an extra syllable or remove a syllable. But other than that, because I think if I've wrote it, I've wrote it for a reason. So why should I take bits out? But yeah. some people say that editing is the, the real sort of heart of writing. So you put it all out and then you edit it into the piece. Whereas I I'm write surprised. it into a piece. No, no, your pieces, uh, from what I've heard, come across as as edited <coughs> as I assumed they probably were edited. But yeah, I guess that I guess it must be just more intense. The actual creative point must be more intense because when I'm writing, it's like just a bit of a train of thought. It's just a bit of a start, you know. And I that is true of my work. I definitely the the heart of it would be in the editing for right. sure, and the, it would take way longer maybe 10 times as long as the writing of it did because okay. I think the, the writing is just about getting it out onto the page for me yeah. getting, getting the thoughts out like the snapshot that you, you're thinking about that story that character that song that poem whatever it is and then the editing is really like making it something that people might understand that might actually be worth reading or listening to like uh, okay. there's no, so, there's no so right do you or wrong write, there. do you do like um a list of either associative words or phrases and then turn that into something. So do you like whiteboard it where you just put everything down to do with that topic? Well, that's what I, I sometimes do when I'm going for like a poem with a rhyme. I actually do look at like what rhymes are possible and then I just kind of try and work towards those at the <coughs> end of the line, you know. Right. Like that's okay. how I try and rhyme, but like that's not, I, I mean, I've done all sorts of writing. The spoken word's actually probably the most recent. I, I call them projects really I've done like scripts and I've yeah. done page poetry short stories tried novels plays and spoken word was like that's taken over my creative energy for the past two three years since I've been in Leeds really but like now it's probably going to move on to something else and <coughs> I think I have a different approach to each one but I, if I was doing a novel then I'd probably do that whiteboarding or whatever the, the sort of fleshing out of a character that takes right. time and it takes planning and you need to kind of craft it, don't you? But I think I think the pure bit of writing and any creative thing is is the spark that that idea that light bulb yeah. moment, right? That that that's what we're after. That's what we're all after, isn't it? You know, and you need to sort of be able to capture that in some way and then transform it into something that's that's celebrated and understood. Yeah. You know. So I because of the way my head works, I, I went through like ten years of addiction, and my head works at a hundred mile an hour. Yeah. So. 
when I'm on stage, I don't think about what I'm saying. So I, the first time I tried to do perform without my words was in Halifax at Jen's night. And I knew the poem, I'd been doing it for months. And I got up and my head was sort of saying, look over there, don't forget this, da da da. And I had this internal monologue of what I should be doing. And it made me forget my words. So I nearly quit after six months because I couldn't get over that. I couldn't focus on my words while I was performing. As soon as there was an audience, I had this internal monologue of what I should be doing and it distracted yeah. me. So I've started listening to sort of 90s, 2000s rap music. So like Eminem, Dr. Dre, things I knew the words to. Cool. And while that was on in my ears, I would recite poetry and that was my distraction. So now when I'm on stage, if you see me perform now, I literally say the first line and then my mouth takes over and my head continues to do all that stuff. But I know that my mouth's going to do what it needs to do. Amazing. Sometimes yeah. it goes wrong. Like I, I was doing one on Zoom and someone put a comment and I just stopped and read the comment. And I was like, oh, no, I'm meant to be performing. <laughs> and I had to explain to the other people in the chat what had happened and said, please, just don't, don't write any comments because I'll, I'll, I will stop. And, um, yeah, but, so yeah, I just, I just don't think about it now. You conditioned yourself, like, that approach. Wow, yeah, I mean, no, that, that is that's good. I guess it, it also probably... Did you say that you do that when you're writing as well? You sometimes kind of... Or is it just yeah. a rehearsal? No, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mainly to rehearse, it's just it sort of... Well. It's just... And this is why I feel quite relaxed. Like we, we performed at the West Yorkshire Playhouse. And um, before that, there was people there that I really look up to as artists and still do. This isn't me saying I don't anymore. But mm. some of them seemed quite anxious or they were rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing before they went on. And I was just really sort of chilled out. And then I started to worry myself thinking, should I be, should I be more worried, worried than I am? But in my head, I've just accepted that. I've learned it as much as I can. No matter how much I rehearse it now, it's not going to make a difference. I'm either going to know the words or I'm not. And I've accepted that and that's how I perform I, I don't think you'd feel relaxed if you weren't prepared, you know what I mean? If yeah. you'd, you'd know when you weren't prepared and, and I don't think you'd be relaxed if, if you weren't prepared. Yeah. Because you, you yeah. must be just naturally prepared for some of the poems that, yeah. that you perform. But. but this is, I've had to be, so I've had to put it into my head that much that I don't have to think about it. And that's, that's literally it. They call this thing a, a dead cat. Okay, um, nice. Yeah, and it does actually look a bit like, like one, one now. That one. That's a shame, <laughs> isn't it? But no, this actually something that happened earlier. Like we don't have to really go on no, much do longer. Want, do you want to before you go? Sure, if you offer. Another one of them, you can have as well. Oh, I don't. It's, but um, when we when we were at the traffic lights earlier, and like it felt it felt quite symbolic and significant that like. You know, like when you've been living somewhere so long, like I've never lived anywhere as long as you've lived here, but yeah. you know exactly when the lights changing, right? Yeah. And like, you know, the lights before like any tourists, they're all waiting for the green man and yeah. all this. <laughs> and you, you're, you know, when you can walk on a bit of, on a red light, you know, yeah. you're watching the traffic. <laughs> but I think you hadn't realized, I think, I think it took you by surprise and that it felt like, <laughs> Well, maybe you do always have to keep yourself on your toes and you maybe don't, don't know quite everywhere 100%. Well, usually when I'm sat at a red light and the green man goes and I'm coming down the hill where we walked, that usually goes green. <coughs> Oi, get on there. Come here. Yeah, usually when you're coming down past the cemetery and you get to the lights, if they're on red and the green man's on, 
they're the ones that go green first. So when the green man went and we just missed it, I thought, well, even if someone's coming around, we've got more than enough time to cross the road. But the other ones went green. I see. Which, so which is the wrong way show, around. That, that's something that shows like how well you know a place, I think. But it, no one could know a place like this better than you. But there'd always still be that 1% that you don't know. And that's it for another edition of Look Closer, the found fiction podcast. Thank you very much to my special guest, Phil Pierce, who took us on a creative journey around Beeston. Before we say goodbye, we've got a few pieces of found fiction news to tell you about. Street Stories is now live. This is our street literature project taking place in Quarry Hill in Leeds. We've worked with four Leeds-based writers to create super short stories about Quarry Hill residents past, present and future. The stories are displayed in public spaces on vinyl stickers, foam boards on easels and on A4 printouts marked Read Me. Street Stories is supported by Leeds City College Arts Fund and if you want to find out more, visit bit.ly slash quarryhill. It's Proper Art is also about to happen in London. This is another street literature project of ours. We've been working with writers from London to create art gallery descriptions of real places in the capital as part of Kensington and Chelsea Art Week. And this one will be live from October 1st and we're super excited about that. Finally, we were really proud to stage the Isolation to Innovation Masterclass series in early August. And this event saw us come together with creative practitioners in Kenya, France and Romania to lead a series of sessions which aim to inspire artists who've really struggled economically, psychologically during these periods of lockdown we've experienced across the world. And a big shout out here to Old Bank Noma in Manchester and Nairobi-based Creatives Garage for helping us make this event happen. That's all we've got time for this time. Until next time, make sure you stay positive, connected and kind. Thanks for listening to Look Closer, the Found Fiction Podcast. Love the cases, love the clauses, love the adverbs and the antecedents, love the words. From ELFM. Church Going 2020. What have you missed most this year? Pubs? Performances? Pizza Express? Whatever it might be, chances are it will have involved a building and a crowd. This is especially true for people of different faiths who, unless the refugees from religious persecution themselves, will never have experienced not being able to gather together. This has left places of worship empty. Poets have been here before. Church going. Once I am sure there's nothing going on, I step inside, letting the door thud shut. Another church, matting, seats and stone and little books, sprawlings of flowers cut for Sunday, brownish now, 
some brass and stuff up at the holy end, the small, neat organ, and the tense, musty, unignorable silence brewed God knows how long. Hatless, I take off my cycle clips in awkward reverence, move forward, run my hand around the font. From where I stand, the roof looks almost new, cleaned or restored. Someone would know. I don't. Mounting the lectern, I peruse a few hectoring large-scale verses and pronounce, Your endeth, much more loudly than I'd meant. The echoes snigger briefly. Back at the door, I sign the book, donate an Irish sixpence, reflect the place was not worth stopping for. Yet stop I did. In fact, I often do, and always end much at a loss, like this, wondering what to look for, wondering, too, when churches fall completely out of use, what we shall turn them into, if we shall keep a few cathedrals chronically on show, their parchment, plate and picks in locked cases, and let the rest rent free to rain and sheep. Shall we avoid them as unlucky places? Or, after dark, will dubious women come to make their children touch a particular stone? Pick simples for a cancer, or on some advised night see walking a dead one. Power of some sort or other will go on, in games, in riddles, seemingly at random. But superstition, like belief, must die. And what remains when disbelief has gone? Grass. Weedy pavement, brambles, buttress, sky, a shape less recognisable each week, a purpose more obscure. I wonder who will be the last, the very last, to seek this place for what it was. One of the crew that tap and jot and know what rude lofts were? Some ruin bibber, randy for antique, or Christmas addict, counting on a whiff of gown and bands and organ pipes and myrrh? Or will he be my representative, bored, uninformed, knowing the ghostly silt dispersed, yet tending to this cross of ground through suburb scrub because it held unspilt so long and equably what since is found only in separation, marriage and birth and death? and thoughts of these, for which was built this special shell. For, though I've no idea what this accoutred, frowsty barn is worth, it pleases me to stand in silence here. A serious house on serious earth it is, in whose blent air all our compulsions meet, are recognised and robed as destinies. And that much never can be obsolete, since someone will forever be surprising a hunger in himself to be more serious and gravitating with it to this ground, which, he once heard, was proper to grow wise in, if only that so many dead lie round. Philip Larkin is a divisive figure. Admired rather than loved, England's most famous librarian has written some of the English language's best poetry, yet he's rarely named as anyone's favourite. 
Andrew Motion said he wrote with a very English glum accuracy, which was never going to make great advertising copy. There was no tragic early demise, no doomed relationship, no substance abuse. In fact, to quote Maria Edgar, nothing to laugh at at all. Poetry critics couldn't agree whether he was a conservative, retro-facing traditionalist or a narrow-eyed prophet of a new kitchen sink realism. All photos of him seemed to be black and white, and this austere image was hardly enhanced when lurid hints of racism and sexual weirdness emerged on the publication of his private diaries. So then, this makes him an ideal starting point for this picture of one aspect of life in a world learning to live with COVID-19. Church going. Or, more accurately, gathering together in our different ways to try and find something deeper than Premier League football. It came about for me as a member of the congregation at St Ellen's Church in Wakefield. I've been part of that small community for about 40 years and though we have our quirks, it's improved a lot since we stopped stoning people and launching holy wars, even if too many of the worship songs still sound like Coldplay. During lockdown, it was clear that any sort of gathering would be likely to endanger serious numbers of people, so worship as people knew it wasn't going to resume any time soon. Some parishes held online services, others tried then, faced with the technological challenges, gave up and focused instead on the business end of religious life, like delivering food parcels. At our house, we've been tuning into online services from Holy Trinity Brompton, home of the Alpha Course and, it seems, quite a few celebs. Then, going for a walk in the woods. All rather jolly, and you can do the washing up at the same time. So, when the Prime Minister announced that places of worship would be allowed to reopen at the end of June for individual private prayer, many people from different faiths' reaction was, so what? For most faiths, if you're going to pray, you can do it anywhere. But nevertheless, I accepted a cunningly worded invitation to act as a sort of low-powered bouncer for an hour on a Wednesday morning to manage numbers and clean up afterwards. In the event, six people turned up and all they really wanted to do, it seemed, was chat. Once I'd explained the procedures, hand sanitizers, distancing and so on, I left them to it and wiped down the pew when they left. It's interesting the effect social distancing has on perception. One person who came in was a woman in her late 60s who, when she wanted to talk, kept leaning in conspiratorially, talking out the side of her mouth. This resulted in a weird dance reminiscent of a boxer on the defensive. The more I backed off, the more she leaned in. I've known her for years and it struck me that this is how she's always talked. But, given the current imperative to back away, this was the first time I'd actually noticed it. Once these excitements had died down, that left another mm, 57 minutes to kill, so, like you do, I started writing. Wednesday mornings also happen to be when the organist comes into practice, so the atmosphere is quite pleasant. Thinking of Larkin, I wrote this. Church Going 2020 for once, anxiety is a plus to see the need for rubbish bins for paper towels. The automatic gel dispenser baffles. A tactile lifetime's wired as wrong, it seems. Our values flipped, our need for distance has replaced our want in closeness. 
cleaning and wiping and wiping and cleaning away this thing. Still, something yet remains about this space. They won't be singing here for months or years, so organ practice, warts and all, is all we get away with in this hopeful trawl for comfort while we put the future off. Still something yet remains about this space. It pleases me to stand in silence here. The organ at St Helens sounds like any other, though it has an interesting history. Newcomers never give it a thought when they hear it, but this is not a traditional organ. This is an all-born computer organ. A digital synthesizer, in fact, but don't tell anyone. Bought in the early 1990s when the old pipe organ finally succumbed to its own respiratory problems, it sounds exactly like the old one, only better. In fact, it's easier to play, as there's no delay between pressing a key and the sound coming out, which can be an issue with some older pipe organs. Instead of pipes, there's an enormous speaker cabinet tastefully hidden behind a huge arrow-shaped array of wooden slats that hints at pipes just enough to stop you thinking about what it is. It looks like it's been there forever, but at the time it was proposed you'd have been forgiven for thinking the PCC were teaming up with King Jenserick and his vandals to desecrate the district and run off with all the hot pies from Richmond's down the road. The second week I was on the door, the clientele had worked out that there was little or no company to be had, so they were clearly doing their praying at home. There was just one customer, myself and John, practising the organ. He'd found a load of sheet music and was having a run through it, though the triplets in Bach's Carter and Fugue in D minor played havoc with his arthritic wrist. Staring into space, I thought of all the times my mind had wandered off while staring at the organ's speakers. Allborn computer organ. The morning organs Vox Humana sings, though these days no one says computer organ. In patchy sermons it becomes a spaceship flown by bit part actors sacrificed destroying the Death Star, or similar. Yet no one gives a second thought to how it makes its sounds. Its speakers fit for sound system reggae, while listeners' minds see pipes in dusty lofts. But beauty, love and goodness don't just happen. And way back someone somewhere gave a life or time or care or just came in and asked for help. The life behind the music sends us off. Just extras, making up the scenes without being seen or knowing how the plot pans out. At this point the listener might be tempted to see what I was doing as a bit pointless. But actually, being sat in a nice church for an hour every Wednesday becomes rather lovely. St Helens is a lovely building, though not in the Betjeman and Alan Bennett way where aficionados drive hours just to look at an original Reredos or a Pevsner rubed screen and get terribly upset if a congregation wants to use the church for its intended purpose. Ruin bibbers, Larkin called them. Mind you, it has its attractions if that's your thing. There's the chair in which the notorious highwayman Nevison was arrested in the Three Houses pub on 6th of March 1684. Nevison's reputation was of a gentleman highwayman, never hurting his victims, and he is said to have made a 200-mile gallop from Rochester all the way to York in a single day after a robbery in order to establish an alibi. 
Apparently, he arrived at sunset and contrived to meet the Lord Mayor and make a wager on a bowls match. The M25 wasn't built then, which probably shortened the journey. When later arrested, he produced the Lord Mayor as his alibi and was cleared. The claims in this story, given the effort involved, make one wonder whether this may have been the first case in which the amount the accused was sweating was a factor. Though he'd never been in a Pizza Express, the story inspired William Harrison Ainsworth to include a modified version in his novel Rookwood, in which he attributed the feat to the more famous Dick Turpin. Anyway, Nevison didn't escape the law for long and he was eventually hanged at York for the murder of a constable who tried to arrest him. Traditionally, the chair is occupied by the vicar during services, but it's so damned uncomfortable none of them ever do. Otherwise, it's a modern old building. Video screens have replaced prayer books and the 32-trap mixing desk hums neatly in a rear pew. To the right of the door is a Victorian memorial to a parishioner, Margaret Vaughan, who died in 1836. In 40 years, I'd never even given it a glance. It'd been positioned somewhere he'd never really be pointing. The portentous wording of the lower slab caught my eye and turned me instantly into Benny Hill. Memorial of Margaret Vaughan A poetic gobstopper holding a mirror to the culture of the reader. Today they call it a journey. A way of reckoning you know when you don't. Sounds like a plan when you're lost and don't let on. Of a quick perception of a mind penetrating and comprehensive. Her judgement ready, clear, sound. Of a presence noble and commanding. Her manners were kind and unaffected. Her intercourse with the world was extensive. She suffered not fashion to dictate her friendships. She industriously sought out such as were in need and secretly relieved them. A poetic gobstopper holding a mirror to the culture of the reader. Today they'd call it a journey. She submitted to her maker's will, suddenly summoned hence with pious resignation. Her last days were spent in watching anxiously over the sickbed of her brother, who, in affectionate admiration of her many virtues, has raised this tablet to her memory. A poetic gobstopper, holding a mirror to the culture of the reader. Today they'd call it a journey, a way of reckoning you know when you don't. Sounds like a plan when you're lost and don't let on. The third week I was on duty, I pointed this out to Rupert Martin, the vicar, and we discussed the memorial's accompanying piece. Above the marble slab with Margaret's rather carry-on eulogy is a bas-relief man in a toga, presumably the brother in mourning, leaning glumly on a large urn. If that were Margaret's ashes, she must have been built like Ab Terry, as my dad would have said. Anyway, now I was an expert, having been aware of its existence for mm, a week now, I speculated that there must have been quite a gap between her death and the erection, ooh, missus, of the memorial. Not really, he said. In those days, they'd knock them out in a week. There'd be stonemasons everywhere. Poor woman. She catches TB looking after her brother, then. Here we are, all postmodern and ironic, tittering away 150 years later, making infantile double entendres and catty comments about their poor taste in memorials. Margaret Vaughan Memorial 2 
The morning brother in relief above the chiselled slab of grief, in language odd and tortuous, still life in stilted sentences, all back to front, frustrated verse in tone if not in form. At first, the arcane use of intercourse and secretly relieving those in need provokes a knowing snort. A common prayer to cleanse the thoughts of our hearts plays crudely around his marble lips, once hammered out in hours by piecework masons carving with chisels driven by starving fear. In those days they knocked him out. Art kept for privilege, then as now. Larkin's poem written almost 70 years ago now, is as irreverent as we are, with echoes sniggering briefly when he pronounces Here endeth too loudly. But that doesn't stop him being serious. The poem wanders around massive questions of faith and spirituality as casually as a saunter round an ave. An atheist who describes himself at a loss when looking round churches, Larkin wonders what will happen when churches fall completely out of use. Secular intellectuals flirt with hubris when they assume that the secularisation of Western thought is de facto part of a linear process where scientific advancement inevitably erases religious faith, where the future all looks like Star Trek. This is understandable if, like Larkin, you'd grown up in an era where church attendance seemed universal and then, as mores changed, fell away. But faith has been with people since primitive tribes tried to influence the weather, so it's a questionable assumption. However, Larkin recognises that even an empty building says something about how we are as people, believers or unbelievers. A serious house on serious earth it is, in whose blent air all our compulsions meet. Cynical atheist though he was, Larkin sought around a dusty empty structure built for something he doesn't believe in, still allows him to recognise that, in such places, someone will forever be surprising a hunger in himself to be more serious. Sitting here myself on a day when no one turns up just to be on their own, it's clear that the empty pews are an odd affirmation that people would rather congregate than isolate. It's the same with poetry. When the lockdown happened, in the midst of the biggest disaster since World War II, all the social media chatter from poets was about how we might organise poetry readings. It was as if we just couldn't do without coming together to have obvious stuff shouted at us for an evening. For me, this makes two things clear. One, we are relational. Two, our lives are consumed by the search for meaning in a world where joy and suffering appear to relate to each other in an unfathomable way. For some, this includes a religious faith which defies logic, even if you believe in it. Others reject religious faith completely, though I'm almost fascinated by how much time atheists spend talking about a God they know doesn't exist. Mind you, as a Christian, given a choice of a night out with either Richard Dawkins or Pat Robertson, if the hair-washing excuse doesn't work, you'd probably toss a coin and pray it landed on its edge. And there's the thing. Rationality can sometimes be as hit and miss as faith. While I was writing this bit, 
We got a call saying our one-year-old granddaughter had been taken into hospital with suspected meningitis. She'd been teething and drooled everywhere for the last few days and been under the weather. She didn't have a temperature and just seemed out of sorts. She had also been prone to rashes through having sensitive skin. Rationally then, nothing at all to worry about. But when that call came through that she'd been taken into hospital, we prayed. Some would dismiss this as superstition. But when the poem says that superstition and belief must die, there's an ambiguity. Does Larkin mean it's inevitable or simply desirable? Is superstition necessarily a bad thing? I mean, walking under ladders is hazardous, especially on building sites. Is faith itself necessarily a bad thing? Religion has caused lots of death in wars. Some of them, as Terry Jones once said, waged between people who took Jesus at his word when he commanded us to love one another, but killed each other because they disagreed about exactly what he meant. On the other hand, socialism and fascism in the 20th century murdered on a scale that made the Crusades and sectarianism seem amateurish. If faith in our society amounted to no more than food parcels, homeless shelters and somewhere for people to meet with the odd bigot thrown in, would it amount to a plus or a minus? These are serious questions, but if anybody claims they uniquely have the answers, the conversation is probably not going anywhere soon, if ever. Back staring round St Helens, just like Larkin in his turn, we kick these questions round like a dog's football. This is also the value of poetry, the sort that leaves you room to think that gives as many questions as answers, rather than just being a series of rhymes you're required to agree with or face condemnation. Listeners who are still conscious may be mentally comparing and contrasting religion and poetry as we speak. Both are baffling, often absurd, but also as old as the ills. Whether you have a faith or not, you might just be praying for these musings to end. But... For those of us who have, to paraphrase Larkin, a hunger in ourselves to be more serious, we'll always gravitate towards spaces where we can take time out from the logistics of existing to ponder meaningful stuff, whether it be at churches, football grounds, Glastonbury or Buzz Bingo. I'm clearly not Larkin, but I'll end with this poem which attempts to respond to our curious habit of gathering together to find something, even if we can never be quite sure exactly what it is. Audience. The empty pews are testament to God's relational nature in Genesis. The poetic form should be the clue. Not the history of places and dates, but the history of ourself. Falling out and falling in, falling like gravity in space from a failed relationship where the rest of time is spent arguing over the divorce. Wondering whether to make up or stay on the run in paradise, seeking shelter and solace in crowds. The pews meditate in rejection of isolation, where silent prayer could be anywhere, if anywhere at all. Being locked away is always worse than cutting off a nose to spite the face of God, like the rugby player Gargoyles in a stone poem which wants an audience, even if it's that drunk who misunderstood the reference to fascism, or the angry nutter who took you to task for the previously invisible homophobic subtext in that sonnet about the organ. 
While we debate whether clouds are rain clouds or just, you know, clouds, the lady who cuts the grass Wednesday shrieks, I've not seen you for months, and has to check a hug. Empty spaces testify as Da Vinci's limp hand of God reaches across the sky. A building. A poem with no audience. Love the haiku, love the sonnet, love the quatrain and the couplet, love the words, from East Leeds FM. Let me say so. 